0: 12, as we uh, finish this series in uh, Ecclesiastes, we'll be reading this morning verses 9 through 14, the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, If you are able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's word together. Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, or Perhaps better, besides being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The grass withers, and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Uh, this may not be the best time, uh, now that we're kind of rolling out these Q&A video things, uh, this may not be the best time for me to actually admit this up front. Um, but I will. My kids will tell you that I am um, pretty good at uh, taking a simple question with a simple answer and turning it into a dissertation. Um, I sort of examine questions and thoughts and ideas behind the question and what might be leading someone to ask a question like that. And then the answer is not really exactly straightforward. You have to kind of nuance this and that and Maybe just for good measure, add a couple of ideas and thoughts that are really more just tangential to the question at all and and the answer and kind of make an observation. When this kind of connects to this over here and at the end of it all, my kids will look at me and say, you mean you could have just simply said blank and it would have been that much easier and that much faster. My kids will gladly point out to me that I answer. It's gotten to the point now where they know. I mean, they just know. They ask the question, and they just know. And I'll tell them, well, you know what you're about to get into. Yes, Dad, we know. It's okay. We'll listen to the part that matters. We'll ignore all the rest of it. You feel that way at the end of Ecclesiastes. At the end of Ecclesiastes, you feel like, did I just ask Jeff a question? that had a really simple straightforward answer and he decided instead to go wandering I don't even know where before he finally came back and we finally get the simple answer. And at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you're thinking, you could have saved me 10, 11 chapters if you just sort of cut to the chase. You, you didn't have to give me all the wandering and you know connections and this and that and examine all the possibilities all you really had to do was give me this simple straightforward answer you look at solomon you look at the preacher and say well you could have just said this and you would have saved us a lot of time but the reality is that's how biblical wisdom literature works that's how all of wisdom literature works in Scripture It rarely gives you the straightforward, the direct, the easy, the obvious. It rarely gives you the two second answer. It gives you the twenty minute answer. It rarely gives you the let's cut to the chase, yes, no, probably you know instead, you get this long wandering response that 's how wisdom literature works in scripture it 's written to walk us through the oddities and pains and struggles and conflicts and difficulties of life without really giving you a yes or no answer. Because the reality is, we don't always live in a yes or no world. And so wisdom literature is designed to make you Think beyond, well, just tell me the answer and I'll move on. It's designed to teach us how to think biblically in a whole variety of situations. How do we apply the principles of Scripture to the concerns and oddities and pains and struggles and conflicts of the life that we live? Interestingly enough, though, we rarely complain about the book of Job the way we might complain about the book of Ecclesiastes. It took Solomon, and in fact, I contend Solomon never actually got to the answer. Because you'll notice, I assume you noticed, I assume you paid attention, the pronouns are different in this passage. The pronouns are all third person. Uh, the The bulk of the book, the vast majority of the book is first person it's the preacher it's Solomon giving his advice thoughts ideas except for the extreme very beginning and then these last verses somebody's compiled his thoughts and now here he's evaluating them for us but Solomon goes for 11 chapters 10 and a half chapters and never gets to the answer Job, it doesn't seem to bother us that it takes 20-plus chapters of Job to get to the answer. And yet here, it's shorter, but still wandering and the long and involved version here in Ecclesiastes. The preacher's question where's meaning where's the value where's the the purpose where's the the end the aim the benefit the the gain for me for all my toil under the sun which man has to toil in the answer turns out it's been simple all along even though he never got there even though he never gives us <clears throat> the simple straightforward answer part of the problem is you recall his his examination his scope the the area you know sort of the the I don't know the the designated stuff that he's evaluating is all between the horizons and under the sun he's limiting his scope to the things that he can see. He's limiting his scope, his evaluation, his examination for his hunt, his search for meaning and purpose to life under the sun. He's limited his scope to the space between the horizon. But the evaluation takes us beyond that. It takes us to a different perspective. And in verses 9 through. 14, we find we have this this view from above, this view from a different angle than the preacher has ever taken. Besides being a wise man, I think wise is more of a noun here than an adjective. It's not a big deal, but still. He taught knowledge. He weighed and studied and arranged Proverbs with great care. He's committed to his work and he's he's careful in the way he works. He's diligent in that task. You can go read first Kings four by the way and find where Solomon wrote three thousand Proverbs, oh, and a thousand and five. I find that a most curious precision there. A thousand and five songs. Solomon's gathered This kind of wisdom, this kind of advice, this kind of understanding. He sought, verse 10, He sought to find words of delight and He sought to write upright words of truth. Again, upright I think describes the words, not so much Him, but again, it's hardly a difference. How many times have we Asked ourselves during this series, does the preacher really have the right perspective on blank? Just think of all the times that that we've sort of observed that, you know, here's this guy who's supposed to be the, the wisest man in all the world, and yet he keeps landing at some really... Sketchy, less than stellar points of view, he keeps landing on on very what seemingly unbiblical answers. he keeps landing in places that don 't seem to make sense for someone who 's just that wise. His conclusions don 't seem to fit with the rest of the Bible. he said things like animals and people well there 's really no difference. He said things like, well, death gets the last word. He said things like, and it certainly implied that that there is no life beyond the grave. There is no life to come. That's contrary to the rest of the Bible. That doesn't seem to us like the wisest man who's ever lived. And so you sort of are driven to ask in verse 10, Did he succeed? Did he actually accomplish what he set out to do? He sought to find words of delight and write upright words of truth. Did he succeed? And you're left thinking, no. I actually think he didn't. And sure, libraries are filled. There are... Of the making of many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. And again, that's a warning. My son, beware of anything beyond these, because we know libraries, we've seen libraries full of some of the greatest, brightest minds in all the world who might like Solomon, recognize that God exists and that He's sovereign, but He never lets that truth affect His life. You read minds like Stephen Hawking and Carl Sagan and others who brilliant minds, but their wisdom ends where the sun sets. So did the preacher succeed? Did he do What he set out to do. Well, the refrain throughout the book tells us that answer. Vanity of vanities, said the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, futile, a waste of time. Short-lived and lacking weight and value and purpose. He always landed in futility. Have you ever wondered... Why restaurants think it's a big deal to advertise that they have the freshest ingredients? Has this ever crossed your mind? Like, you see these restaurants who are like, yeah, we're picking greens from our backyard. So the stuff that we're cooking your meal with was growing right back here just a few hours ago. Like, why does it matter that the fish you're eating came out of the ocean yesterday? Like, why is that a big deal? Because there's a part of me that thinks, well, clearly the chef must not be very good. That you need fresh ingredients. It seems to me like if the chef was really as good as we thought he was, or he thinks he is, it wouldn't really matter if they were the freshest ingredients. He could still make a great meal. Only to realize that even a great chef, even a James Beard winner with... Horrible, terrible ingredients. Stale, whatever. Can't make something good. That's the preacher. He's using ingredients that aren't fresh. He's using the wrong stuff to cook with. He's limiting his perspective to under the sun. And because of that, He just can't reach the answer he thinks he does or thinks he wants to. He can't quite reach the rest of, be consistent with the rest of Scripture. He's starting with ingredients that don't include God and his sovereignty. You know, maybe we, maybe we start with the wrong ingredients. Maybe we try to mix in too much Fox News or CNN or Friends or Neighbors or the Wall Street Journal or this book or that, maybe we need to start with better ingredients. You know, It may very well be true that we as believers are thinking too much like the world and landing in too much despair because we're not starting with God and His Word. Instead, we're starting with this world and then we can't get beyond this world. Are you building your understanding and examination of the world around you and evaluating your experiences based on God and His Word, or are you doing it the other way around? Well, then this evaluator, compiler, um, before giving us the answer, again, even this guy, takes a little bit of a, at a, of a run at an answer. Before he just gives you the straightforward answer, he kind of gives you a little background and, and explanation. Before he gets to the answer, he reminds us that the words of the wise are like goads, verses, verse 11. Like nails. Firmly fixed. Goads. A uh, uh, goad's a long stick. Um, a lot of times with like a nail or a pointy end attached or whittled down to a pointy end, you use it to make animals go where you want them to go. You can't get the cattle to actually walk and turn and head that direction instead of heading that direction. You grab the pointy stick and you point him and he turns from the pointy stick because he doesn't like it because it hurts. And so he turns until you quit po- uh, poking him with the pointy stick. And when you quit pointing him with the, poking him with the pointy stick, he's happy and he can kind of walk in that direction. He knows what you want him to do. Sometimes the words of the wise are painful. Painful. Sometimes we don't want to hear them. Now there could be any number of reasons why they hurt. Sometimes they're painful because they speak the truth to us and we don't always want to hear the truth. Maybe they're words that, that point out our selfishness, that point out our pride, that point out our, our lack of repentance, our need for going to a brother or sister and, and repenting of sin and restoring a relationship. Maybe they point out our disobedience and we don't really want to hear that. Sometimes they're painful because the very things that we build our life on are getting knocked out from underneath us. That seems to be where the preacher is in this book. I I worked on wealth. That didn't do it. I tried pleasure. That didn't do it. I tried work in general. That didn't do it. I tried possessions and gardens and singers and all kinds of stuff. And guess what? They all left me empty. And so sometimes the words of the wise hurt because they leave us empty. The things we are trying to build our life on get knocked out from underneath us. And that's painful. Sometimes the words of the wise are painful because they point to our own. Futility. They remind us that we're examining our life based on Fox News or CNN rather than based on God and His Word. Maybe we're trying to explain life from a limited under-the-sun perspective and the words of the wise remind us that we're looking the wrong way. We're examining it the wrong way. Words of the wise are like goads, like nails. Pointing us, steering us, painful at times, yes, but to get us to go in the right direction. I want you to notice something. I'm convinced the preacher is Solomon. I'm convinced that the preacher never gets the answer he's looking for. I'm convinced that the, that the preacher is Solomon, not late in life sort of converted and looking back and bashing his life. I'm, I'm convinced he's actually despairing. Um, that that's actually his perspective. But I want you to notice he's never condemned for asking questions. You and I are given freedom, even by God and his word, to ask questions. We're never forbidden, even from coming to God and saying, God, why? Why are you allowing blank? How come we're going through blank? Why won't you stop blank? You are allowed, you're encouraged To bring those questions to God. The Bible gives you room to cry out. It gives you room to cry out straight to God himself. But the Bible also always tells you there's a point at which to stop asking questions. The Psalms are full of questions. But even in the, the psalms of struggle and conflict and lament, they always land. Oh, that's right, God, you're in control. Job is full of turmoil and conflict and questions. And yet at some point, he finally has to say, I'm just going to cover up my mouth because I'm, I'm now at the place where I have asked my questions and it's time to trust And so he places his hand over his mouth. That's where Ecclesiastes ends. That's the simple answer that the preacher never actually got to in his book. We find it in verse 13. The end of the matter. Everything's been examined. The questions have been asked. This is the ultimate... Solution, destination, this is where you were headed. This is where all the questions and the confusing answers and the uncertainty, this is where you were supposed to go. The end of the matter. Everything's been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. The final ending, the final destination, once everything else has been laid out and examined and tested and tried and and left to be replaced by something else to test and to try, the simple answer is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now, in the Proverbs and here, fear is... Reverence awe that drives worship and obedience. We've read about the fear of God already in Ecclesiastes. He's brought up the fear of God. But you notice that because he never sees beyond the horizon, because he never sees beyond death, that you really get the sense that the preacher means be afraid because at any given moment, he could squash you. That's his perspective. In Proverbs, it's different. In Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That reverential awe that drives worship and obedience. That's the aim here. It's like, well, it's like our affirmation of faith just a few minutes ago when we asked what is saving Faith, in many ways, this fear, this reverence is just like that. A, a belief and a trust and a confidence and a submission to His wisdom and His will. We're called to fear God and to keep His commandments. Why? There's a reason given, actually there's two reasons given in verses 13 and 14. We're told, given two reasons why we should fear God and keep His commandments. The first is at the end of verse 13. For this is the whole duty of man. This is what you and I were created to do. We, as people, as descendants of Adam and Eve, God's vice regents placed on the earth, To rule and subdue and govern creation for God on his behalf. Our purpose is to fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, Things went wrong in the garden when Adam and, and Eve finally heard, well, did God really say? They quit fearing God and they didn't keep his commandments. You and I, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To fear God, keep His commandments. To, uh, to, to love and serve Him in every aspect of our life. That's our purpose. That's the very reason for our existence. So the first reason actually looks back to our purpose. The second reason looks ahead to eternity. We're told in verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's a bit of an ominous place to finish a book, don't you think? With God's eternal judgment and His omniscience, His knowledge of even secret things. When the preacher has given any sort of thought at all to God's judgment. It was always in this life. He never brings into His perspective the judgment you and I immediately think of when we read this verse. At the return of Christ, the dead are raised and gathered to be judged, sheep and the goats separated. You and I in our minds, we jump there automatically. Well, that, that's, that's a sign that you're actually letting God and His sovereignty and a beyond-this-horizon, above-the-sun perspective affect your thinking. Because the preacher, Solomon, never actually did that. But this framer, this compiler God, this evaluator wants us to look there. There's coming a day, a final judgment when God will judge the wicked, the good and the evil. And even secret things, the things we thought were hidden, the things we thought nobody else knew, the things we thought, the things that nobody else knows. And so we see God's judgment and sovereignty. Even in the resurrection, even after the last day, as it were. We're pointed to God's judgment and His omniscience, His knowledge of all things. You know, the preacher asked, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? We we saw it back in... Chapter 1, verse 3 is really the heart of his question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's looking for meaning and purpose. He's looking for value and worth in himself and in mankind. And he never comes to an answer. He rambles, he wanders, he hymns and haws and never got there. All the while, the simple answer is this, fear God and keep his commandments all the questions of life are answered, fear God and keep His commandments. When life doesn't go the way you think it should, fear God and keep His commandments. When, when your job suddenly comes to an end and you had no idea it was coming, fear God and keep His commandments. When your kids wander away from the truth, they leave the church, fear God and keep His commandments. When you're staring death in the face, fear God and keep His commandments. When the church doesn't grow like it should or things don't always go the way you think it should, fear God and keep His commandments. That's the simple answer. I want you to notice something. There's a difference between simple, a simple answer, and easy It's simple, not simplistic. It's simple because it's straightforward and obvious. All the questions of life, fear God and keep His commandments. And then you're reminded of our confession of sin. You're reminded of our affirmation of faith. You're reminded, I don't do that very well. What's my hope? Where do I go? What happens if I don't always fear God and keep His commandments? Am I doomed? Maybe I'm going to land like the preacher looking for the hammer to come down from God suddenly and squash me out of nowhere. But the beauty is you have a Savior. You have Jesus Christ. You look to Him as the one who perfectly and always and to the end feared God and kept his commandments and did so for you. Now, Paul takes up that question and says, well, wait, does that give me license to sin all the more? Hey, if there's that much grace, then the more I sin, the more grace we can pour down. That's not the point at all. When you're tempted to sin all the more so that you can rain down more of God's grace, fear God and keep His commandments. The work of Christ on our behalf accomplishes our salvation because He perfectly and completely feared God and kept His commandments in every way perfectly, completely. And that fuels our desire for change. Our longing for change to fear God and keep His commandments. May God grant us the grace to honor Him and to do what's right to His honor and glory. Let's pray.